If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And hopefully we've already introduced the, the, the context to you. Um, a real place, a real time, in a real world. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to Ephesians. I've got so much that I want to say this morning that I'm going to have to dive straight in. So he begins chapter 1 verse 1 by introducing himself. He says, Paul, that's his name, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's really important. See, what Paul is saying is this. I am who I am because of the will of God. My identity, my core identity is who I am in Christ Who I am in God before anything else. Even before I'm an apostle, even though I say I'm an apostle, it's by the will of God. I am who I am because of the will of God. And I said a few weeks ago, if you were here, our core identity, the thing at the centre of who you are, if it is not your relationship with God, then you will borrow a core identity from somewhere or something else. And when you borrow something, you're in debt. And when you're in debt, you have to service the debt. So if your identity is in your ability or your identity is in your job or your identity is in the, the need for security or prosperity or happiness, if that's your core identity, not only does it drive your life, but you're in debt to that because you have to service that because you borrowed it. And Paul says, listen, I am who I am because of God. I'm only standing here before you. I'm only writing this letter to you guys because of who I am in God. And, and then he says, and then he, you talk about who it's written to, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, he says, in Christ and in Ephesus. These guys are leading double lives. They are in Christ, but they're also in Ephesus. Every believer lives that kind of life, where we are in Christ and we're in a real situation and a real time in history. And if you look in church history, where the church has got into error is where it's thought, actually, it's just about us being in Christ and we're in a little holy huddle here. Or it's gone so far the other way that we're just in the world. But Paul says, no, you're both. You're in Christ and you're in Ephesus. First and foremost, your address is a divine address. You're in Christ. Secondly, you have a human address. You're in Ephesus. I've um, recently discovered a new place to study. I've always, when I've studied, always, because I'm an activist person, I've needed to force myself to study and to be quiet. And so I've created like a room where I study and I put monk music or dolphin whale type music to calm me down, get the caffeine out of the way, to try and get me quiet, contemplative in solitude so I can study. I've found a new place to study. I study now in the centre of Merry Hill, which is totally not like what I've described. And so I go now, I've done it. Every week, over the last few weeks, once or twice a week. And I go and I find a coffee shop somewhere and I sit and I get my books out, my concordance out, my Bible out, my highlighting pens. And I have a, a latte, skinny, of course, as you can tell. And, uh, and then I study. And it's been amazing how much God is speaking to me. Because in that noise and with the music playing and the of kids and all of that and, and the hustle and the bustle of everything, just hearing God speak has been phenomenal. Now, quiet environments are really important, and I will do that, but I've just, at this moment in my life, found something in that. And in the middle of Eat Central, if you've been there, with all of that activity, just hearing God speak to me in so many different ways, to remind me that as I look at the Bible, I have to search the Bible for spiritual truth that I can apply in a real world. Because I'm in Christ, and I'm in Merry Hill. And they have to be both. Some of you are excited about that. He says we can go to Mary Hill. I don't shop. 
okay? Just take the Bible, all right? And a latte, and that's it. And then he says, and, and, and he says, and listen, and you guys who I'm writing to, you're saints. You're saints in Ephesus. Now, so the church has taken that concept and that word saint and taken it to something it was never meant to be. A saint is not a perfect, supercharged Christian that we venerate and put in a, a window. That's never what a saint. A saint, literally, saints mean the called out ones. The ones who aren't perfect, but they're called out to want to follow Christ. And he says, you're all saints. Isn't that amazing? So I'd just like to introduce yourself and you can say, hi, my name is Saint and whatever your name is to the person next to you. And of course, we've got Bernard here, the old joke there. So Saint Bernard, yep. Because the reality is, you are all saints. You are all saints, even Saint Bernard. You're all saints. And, And Paul says, listen, I'm writing to you. I am who I am by the will of God. You live a double life because you're in Christ and you're in Ephesus, but you're all saints. You're all called out to follow me. And then after the greeting in verse 2, grace and peace to you, he then begins in verse 3, and this is what he says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now I want you to know something, and I'm really excited about this. That verse is the whole of Ephesians in one verse. It literally is, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He spends the rest of the book, five chapters or so, six chapters, unpacking that one verse. And then what he does after verse 3 is verse 4 to 14, he opens up a little bit. Of, of, of what we have in Christ. What is this spiritual blessing that we have if we say we're a Christ follower? Now, it was meant to be written, or it was meant to be, when it, when it was written originally, there's no punctuation. There's no commas or full stops or anything. It was one long sentence, verse 4 to 14. It's meant to be read as one long sentence, and at the end of it, where you don't just go, hmm, that's nice, where you just go, wow. I'm going to read that to you in a bit. Because what he wants to do is in Ephesians, especially chapter 1, he's appealing to their hearts and minds. He says, I'm going to appeal to your mind, but I want to appeal to your heart. Because it's possible for you to know who you are in your mind, but not know who you are in your heart. And so this appeal to the hearts and minds is absolutely important. And he's saying, listen, you must know who you are. A fan went up to Peter Sellers. Remember Peter Sellers? Some of you will know. Some of you haven't got a clue what I'm on about. Um, and he said, are you Peter Sellers? Peter Sellers says, not today. A woman got into a lift with Robert Redford, the actor, and said, are you the real Robert Redford? He said, only when I'm alone. German philosopher called Schleimacher, one of the fathers of modern thought, as an old man, is sitting on a park bench. And a policeman comes up to him and he looks like a, a vagrant, a homeless guy, and says, Do you know, who are you? And this, this philosopher, this, this intellect said, I wish I knew. You see, identity is vital for the human species, isn't it? It's vital we know who we are. We will never know what we're to do and how we're to live until we know who we are. I'm convinced that there's a massive hole in the centre of our culture and the centre of people, even Christians, where we just don't know who we are. And so life happens, stuff happens, things happen, and all of a sudden we're all knocked away because we don't know who we are. We thought, well, how can this happen to me? How can this situation happen to me? Because we don't know who we are in Christ. We don't know how to live if we don't know who we are. And what I want to do this morning is I want to read this, these verses to you in one sentence. OK? 
Okay? Hopefully I will breathe or I may pass out at the end. But I want to read it from the message translation because I want you not just to hear it with your mind, but to hear it with your heart, to hear it with your spirit. So Paul says, how blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ. He takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind. He settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. And with pleasure, he, you know, he, he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We're a free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds. And we're not just barely free, we are abundantly free. She thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything will be brought together and summed up in him, everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth. You see, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and we got our hopes up, he had his eyes on us. He had designs on us for glorious living. Part of the overall purpose he's working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that you, once you heard the truth and believed this message of salvation, you found yourselves home free, signed, sealed and delivered by the Holy Spirit. This signet from God is the first installment on what's coming. A reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us. A praising and a glorious life. When that was read first, the response was better than that. And if I read that in some churches around the world, they'd be ripping the chairs up by now. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it phenomenal? When you hear it all in one go, you think, wow, God, I can't get my head around all of that. And in one sense, we're not meant to. It's meant to inspire our hearts to say, you did all of that for me, God. What a phenomenal God you are. And what I want to do this morning, because many of us are Western and we are rational and all of that kind of thing, I want to break it down now, line by line, and appeal to your mind. And I'm hoping that as I'm doing this, that God, by the Holy Spirit, is doing something in your heart at a level that I can't connect with. But God can. And so he says, listen, you are blessed. You are so blessed. You don't know how blessed you are. And he says, God the Father has blessed you. God the Son has blessed you. And God the Spirit has blessed you. And we're going to work through those three things. So firstly, God the Father says in verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. He has chosen us. Here's the doctrine of election. Okay? The doctrine of election. Somebody once said, try to explain this and you'll lose your mind. Try to explain it away and you'll lose your soul. It's this idea that God has chosen us. Now, I don't mean that by God choosing us, that that means that God has chosen not to accept some. I don't believe that. This is not like, and if you're a lad, you understand a guy, you understand what I mean. The trauma for an adolescent boy was playground at lunchtime with a football match, and you all line up along the fence, and the two captains, the best players... Myself and no. Two captains, they're going to pick you. And your trauma as an adolescent kid is I'm going to be the last one. And the two captains are going to look at each other and say, I had him last week, you have him this week. And it's just a trauma because it's about choosing. That's not what it means when God says, I've chosen you. He never says, I've chosen you or I've not chosen you. God's will is that everybody is saved. Do you know that? 
But here's how it works. The doctrine of election he has chosen us works like this. The idea is that salvation starts in the heart of God, not the heart of man. So God works amongst everybody and by his spirit he's trying to draw everyone. But when you respond to that and you open up your heart and you say yes to God, you then are chosen. Everybody else is still chosen if they'd like to be. But the doctrine of election, the choice of God only kicks in when you respond to God. You see, God's heart is that everybody comes into a relationship with him, isn't it? And God says, and Paul says, you need to know that when you responded to him, you were chosen. You were chosen. And then he goes on to say, he has adopted us. Now here's the word adoption. Now you have to understand a little bit about Roman culture to understand adoption. So I'm going to borrow Phil, if I can, and I'll borrow Bernard and I'll borrow Dan. Thank you. So in Roman culture and Roman society, um, if you be the, the old father, no, sorry, that's just how it happened, that's just how it happened, you're going to be the new father, so you're over there. The, in Roman culture, there was a thing called patria potestas, which is Latin, it's the only Latin I know apart from carpe diem, all right, and caesarar, sarar, is that, a, is that a Latin or whatever, whatever, next Sunday, by the way, we are screening the football match here next Sunday. If you're, a live, if you're a Villa or Man United supporter, here, three o'clock, okay? Man United, you're going to get battered. Uh, so, patria potestas literally means, literally means the absolute rule of the father. In Roman culture, the son was always the son while the father was alive. So, not like in our culture, when the lad, I'm just walking over this direction, when the lad gets 16, he's also, he knows everything. Do you know what I mean? His dad knows nothing. Then seven, wait till I'm 18. There's nothing you can tell me or do. That was not the reality in Roman culture. No matter how old the son got, he was always under the absolute rule and authority of the father. Patria potestas. Now, if a son wanted to be adopted, if this father wants to adopt this son, and for whatever reason this father's okay with that, we won't go into all that. The process of adoption was like this. That this son would be sold and bought back Twice with copper and scales in an open situation. On the third time he'd be sold to the, new, to the new father. The new father then would go to the magistrate, explain what's happening, why this son, why he wants to adopt this son, and then that becomes like a done deal, legal. Now, here's the amazing thing about adoption. And if you don't understand this, you don't understand what it means to be adopted in Christ. When you left one father to the other, you came out from under the absolute power and authority of the old father and you came under the power and authority of the new father. So you came out from that influence and that control and you came under a new one. And if you had debts or obligations under that father, you left them and you came into the freedom that you now had with the new father. And all of the status that you had there, you now have here. And when you come into this relationship with a new father, listen, it's as if you were a natural son to him. Isn't that phenomenal? So this is why the Bible, the language of the New Testament is so important. Because when Peter says, you're now a chosen nation, a people belonging to God. Once you were in darkness, but now you're in light. You see, the Bible says, the Bible says that all of us, before we come to Christ, behave yourself, I'm trying to explain something here. The Bible says... You might be the father in this illustration, but <laughs> I'm the daddy now. No, yeah. the, 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 Bible says, the Bible says that we are all under the authority of the father of the prince of this world. Isn't it? And, and you see, this is what Paul's writing. He's adopted you. 
See, when you become a Christian, you get saved, regenerated. That brings you into the family, but adoption brings you into the status of the family. You come out from all of the power and all of the authority of the old father, the prince of this world, of darkness, and you come into the new kingdom. You come into light. Aren't you excited about that? All of the old debts and the old life are gone, and you're now living under the authority of a heavenly father. Isn't that phenomenal? Thank you, guys. And Paul says, listen, you need to know, Ephesians, that not only has God chosen you, but he's adopted you. He's brought you out of that old father's power, and now you live under the new power. And some of us need to hear that this morning. Some of us, and I want to prophesy right now, some of us are still living under the power of a father or a mother that we shouldn't be living under. Now, I'm not saying don't honor your father and mother. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we should not be living under an unhealthy impact of a father and a mother when God says I brought you out and you now live under my authority and under my light and under my purpose and plans for your life and the bondage that you experience there is broken if you let me break it in Jesus name he's adopted us and then wow I love it he then says he's accepted you in in verse 6 Not because of what we've done, but because of grace. Isn't that amazing? Just let it sink in for a minute. God the Father has chosen you. He's adopted you. And he's accepted you. Isn't that awesome? And it gets better because then he talks about God the Son. So in verse 7, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood. So he has redeemed us. Now here's another big doctrine. And in the life group notes that we've given to you, normal life group notes, but on the back, there's a section called Going Deeper. And you might want to do this as a life group or do it individually. And we've just picked out redemption and adoption, two massive doctrines of of, of our faith with some scriptures. And you can go and look at those and study those. I want to encourage you to do that. And it says he's redeemed us. Now this idea of redemption is taken from the world of slavery. where, Where the slaves were brought into the open market and they were sold to a new master. And it literally means to purchase and set free by paying a price. So so the concept here in Paul's mind is that not that you're sold into slavery, but you're sold out of slavery into freedom. And the kind of best illustration I can think of, this is a really old one that you've heard, I'm sure, about a young guy, a young boy that builds a boat and he sails the boat in the river and it's great and the current takes it and he runs alongside it, but he loses the boat. It gets carried away down the river. Few day, and he's pretty destroyed and devastated about this. A few days later, he, on his way to school, he sees the boat, or what he thinks is the boat, in the window of a shop. And he walks in, he says, that's my boat, it definitely is my boat. And the shopkeeper says, well it may be, but you're going to have to buy it, because someone brought it in and I bought it from them, and if you want it, you're going to need to buy it. So he goes home and he breaks open his piggy bank and he gets all the money together and he just has enough money. And he goes back and he gives the shopkeeper the money and he takes his boat home with him. And as he's walking down the street, he's holding his boat close to his chest and he says to the boat, now you are twice mine. I made you and now I bought you. And that's what God has done for us, isn't it? We're twice his. He made us. But because of sin and because of our separation from God, we lived under this authority. He needed to buy us back. The Bible calls that redemption. You are twice God's. He made you and he bought you back in the the person of Jesus Christ. Then it says he has forgiven us in verse 7b. The word forgiven there means to carry away. This idea is not from Roman culture. This is from Jewish culture. And in Ephesians there was a synagogue. There were a lot of Jewish people there. 
And Paul says he's forgiven you. And the word and the concept there of forgiveness uh, is from the priestly understanding uh, of what happened when the priest would gather the people together and said, okay, we now want to make intercession. I want to talk to God about the sins of the people. And they get a goat in and they would basically put, symbolically put all the sins of the people onto the goat. It's where we get the word scapegoat from. And then the goat would be sent out. It would literally leave the building and go out into the desert and with it, when all of our sins and wrongdoing carried away. And Paul says, you need to know how blessed you are. Not only has God the Father chosen you, adopted you and accepted you, but because of Jesus, you're redeemed, you're set free from slavery and all of your sins have been carried away, you've been forgiven. Breaks my heart, really breaks my heart to know that there are still so many Christians living under the weight of sin that has been carried away has been carried away. And when we sin, the Bible says that there is a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is our scapegoat again. We come to him and we repent and we say, God, forgive me. And our sins go on him and they're carried away. We do not have to live under the power of sin and wrongdoing. Amen. And it breaks my heart to know that there are still so many Christians living under that old reality. When God says you have a new one. And, and then it says in verse 8 to 10, just look at this. Where am I? Verse 8 to 10. Um, he made known to us the mystery, in verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. He has revealed his will to us. This is brilliant. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. This is like the Scooby-Doo moment when you realise it's the janitor in the sheet. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like, whoa, that's the one. Me and Alison, whenever we're watching films or Agatha Christie's or murder mystery dramas, she has a really annoying habit of knowing the murderer right from the start. I don't even know the murderer at the end sometimes. It's like, what, what, who did what? And I have to ask her, she has to explain it all. She knows right from the start. It's so annoying. So annoying. But do you know what? The experience of watching it when you know the end, when you know the mystery, is totally different than the other side, isn't it? It's like, oh, you know that. Why do you know that? And I feel an outsider. And what Paul says here, this is brilliant, is that you, if you're a Christ follower, you know the mystery. It's been revealed. You are now on the inside. You know it. So you might think to yourself, well, why am I a Christian and why, why aren't other people? Because you've responded to the Spirit at work within you and now you understand something of the mystery. It's been revealed to you. It's the janitor in the white sheet. You know it. And other people around you don't know it. They're brighter than you. They're, they've got all, all this. T- and you think, why don't they get it and why do I get it? Well, that's because the Holy Spirit at work within you, you've responded to that and now the mystery has been revealed. Isn't that amazing? And the Bible says, and this is phenomenal, I just love this. And he does it according to his good pleasure. I always, I grew up, I suppose, uh, with an understanding that God loved me in my mind. But deep down I really believed, and I'm not the only one, that God loves me because he has to. Anyone ever felt like that? Because that's his job description. But, but, but Paul says, no, no, no. He, he didn't do all this stuff because he had to. He did it because of his good pleasure. That's phenomenal. He, he, he redeemed you and he chose you and accepted you and he revealed the janitor to you and he did all of that because he wants to. And if any of you in this room think that God loves you because he has to, I want to tell you, you're wrong. God loves you because he wants to. Jesus gave his life for you. 
because of his good pleasure. Wow. That is phenomenal. And then in verse 11 to 12, it says, says this. Look at this. It says, In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Whoa. What he's saying there is that this is incredible. We only, not only do we have an inheritance, but what Paul says is that we are an inheritance. He says he's made us, and what does it say? I need to get it right. That we might be for the praise of his glory. Not that we might give praise and glory to God, but that we actually might be praise and glory to God. You're not getting that, are you? You see, when we came this morning and when Dan got up after the DVD and said, let's worship God, he encouraged us and we gave God some praise and glory. Hopefully, if we meant what we were singing. We gave God praise and glory. That's brilliant. But Paul says that's just not all because that's like you gave him praise and glory. But I want to tell you, you are his praise and glory regardless of what you do. And this really is important because this kicks into one of the biggest cultural problems that you and I have. Our culture says you are what you do. God says you are what you are. And what you do flows out of who you are, not the other way around. And I want to say that I, I, I actually believe at the moment that God is getting us as a church and certainly us as a leadership right now into a place where he's really, really wanting to get our attention. I can't tell you how many different times we've heard from different people and different sources the same message but said in different ways. And I want, I want to break away from my notes for a minute and just talk into this for a minute with you. And basically the thrust of, of it is this, that for a long time we've been a great church in terms of our activity. We do activity really, really well. And we do projects really well and we do stuff really well, I think. Not always, not perfect, but we do it pretty well. And there's nothing wrong with activity. But if our existence is defined by our activity, two things are going to happen. Number one, we're not going to bring and produce much spiritual fruit. And number two, we're all going to get burnt out. Use a modern parlance, we're going to get knackered. And what I believe God is saying is this, your activity is great, but I don't want your activity primarily, I want you. So on Thursday night we had that gathering here, some of us came to with Suzette Hatting, you know Suzette, she's a, a world famous really in, in some courts, centres, like evangelist, and travel around the world, phenomenal woman of God. For the last 18 months she's been in a wheelchair, she's been in hospital, she's had horrendous conditions, horrendous issues and at one point she said it looked like that she was going to have a leg amputated and she just shared a little bit on Thursday night what God's done with her through this and it's so in line with what I think God's saying to us and she said you know what I got to a point where I was wrestling with God so much about why God wouldn't heal me and why God wouldn't do this and what would happen if God did do that and, and what, how effective I could be for God if God would just get me out this wheelchair and please keep my leg because then I can go all around the world preaching to thousands and thousands of people and in the end I had to leave all that aside and thought actually what God wants more than any of that is he just wants me. He just wants me and then she said I got to the point where I said to God leg or no leg wheelchair or no wheelchair I want you and out of that relationship with God out of that sense of we are who we are will flow what we do are you with me if we get so focused on our activity we will not produce spiritual fruit and we will get burnt out and I do believe 
in my own heart that I need to repent in some ways about some of those things. And I'm trying to do that in my own way at the moment. So God, so little of my energy and focus is just a, is about being. So much of it is about doing. And we're producing a doing church when actually God wants us to be. And then out of our being, do. Does it make sense to anyone? And, and I think... This fact that when Paul says you are who you are, and he's saying this, you are not valuable because of what you do. Now, we all say that in our head, but we don't believe it in our heart. How many of you introduced yourself to someone earlier on without using your name? You did it? How did you do it? What did you use to introduce yourself? Tell me. What you did for a living? Anything else? Your relationship. Do you see what I mean? Is that in our identity, that's what comes first. Isn't it? You meet someone new, all right, and you say, hi, how are you? You know, who are you? I'm Leon. What do you do? That's the first thing we ask, isn't it? Because our culture defines us by what we do. And our value is often taken by what we do. So if you're in a job that's going up like that, you feel valuable. What about if you're in a job that's going like that? What about if you lose your job? What about if you're in a job that's not commensurate with your abilities? Does that mean you're less valuable a person? Does it mean that, you, that God loves you any less? Well, well, it does if you find identity by what you do rather than who you are. I've got a piece of paper here, a blank piece of paper here. I want to ask you a question. H- how much is that worth? What's the value? Very, very little. I've got an identical piece of paper here. Okay, how much is that worth? So you can't even see, can you? It's a £10 note. I know it's not often I bring one out of my wallet, but there you go. There was a moth as well. Two, uh, two pieces of paper, exactly the same size, one worth nothing, one worth £10. Why? Because our government authority has deemed to invest something into that piece of paper that now says that this is worth something, whereas this isn't. Isn't that right? Our value is in not in what we do. Our value is in who we are. And God has invested something into you and into me that says you're worth something. Do you know that? And you see, I could take that and screw it up and throw it down and I could stamp on it. And it could be all dirty and all crumpled and all horrible. It's still worth £10, isn't it? Isn't it? And whether you have had a life where you feel like you've been scrumpled up and pressed down and all that and you don't feel like you're doing anything, that doesn't change your value to God one iota. God loves you because of who you are, not because of what you do. And we can't get it. I can, I can feel in the room, we hear it here and we don't get it here because we don't believe it. And only the Holy Spirit can reveal that to us as we allow him to do that. So Paul says, listen, he's revealed, he's redeemed you, he's forgiven you, he's revealed his will to you, he's made you an inheritance. And then, and then I think when he writes it, he's expecting the, the, the listeners just to sit back for a little bit and go, wow. But then Paul says, but there's more because God the Spirit has also blessed you. And then it says in verse 13, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now a seal in ancient world means a lot of things. There's a sense in which this is a legal transaction. So a lawyer gets a seal and stamps a legal document. This is done. This is lawful. This is legal. This is binding. Commercial transaction implies ownership. Like cattle are branded. That's a seal. It's ownership. It's mine. A royal transaction, the king puts his seal on a document or on a letter. It, 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 it implies authenticity, authority, which is phenomenal. And what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit has sealed you. You belong to God. Isn't that great? 
That carries all the authority of heaven. But then he goes on to say in verse 14, and this is one that really blew my mind, and, and, and the, the promised Holy Spirit, who is also a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. A deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Greek culture. Paul's writing to Greek culture as well. And the Greek commercial world is very into this whole deposit kind of idea, whereas, whereas they would put a deposit on a cow, all right, that's a down payment, that cow now belongs to me, eventually that cow will come to me. I thought, well, we're like that as well. So we go into Ikea and we see a sofa and we think, I like that sofa, and we put a deposit down. Now, who does the sofa belong to when we pay the deposit? Is it mine? Isn't it? Sure. Is, it, is there a sense in which it is mine and it isn't mine? Isn't there? Because I put a deposit down so it's mine, but I haven't fully taken possession of it. And what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit indicates that you belong to God, but that there isn't full possession yet because that's going to come in the future. But you need to know that you do belong to God now because you have a deposit, the Holy Spirit, within you. And I thought, oh, that's great, so I'm like a sofa to God. And then I discovered... When I studied the word more, in the middle of Merry Hill, with my skinny latte, that actually that word also means, in some cultures, engagement ring. So that's a little different, isn't it? Because an engagement ring, in one sense, is also a deposit, isn't it? Guarantee, you know, for the full possession to come. And isn't that incredible that God, by the Holy Spirit, is placed within you and I as a down payment, as a deposit, saying, you're mine, I love you. One day, I want to be in full relationship with you. You belong to me, not as a sofa, but an engagement ring. Love and passion. And God, please, please fill us again with that sense that we're loved by you like that. We're not a commodity. We're not a sofa to be bought by you, to be used by you. But we are your love. We are passion. There's all that. Do you, are you with me? There's that sense in which Paul is saying, listen, you need to know you're not just a commodity that I own. You're a person that I love. This um, book called He Loves Me, which is a great book. I've never pushed it because it's the most terrible cover ever. Like no bloke is ever going to read this book. It's called He Loves Me. It's got a daisy on it. No bloke is ever going to read it. And somebody bought it me for Christmas some years ago and I didn't read it. And then I did read it and then I've read it three times now. Just finished reading it again. It absolutely blew me away. It's a fantastic book. A dreadful cover, especially for a bloke. But it's a great book. And in it he talks a lot about fear. And he says, you know what, a lot of us as Christians are obey God and we relate to God out of a fear basis. And if we do, that will never produce authentic spiritual life within us. Do you know that? We will never be alive in Christ if we only operate out of a sense of fear. And he says this, it's not the fear of losing God's favour that takes us to the depth of fellowship with him and transforms our lives. It's our certainty of knowing his unrelenting love for us even in the midst of our weakness and failure, that will lead us to the fullness of life. You need to know, folks, this morning, that God loves you. He has chosen you. He's adopted you. He's accepted you. He's redeemed you. He's forgiven you. He's revealed His will to you. He's made you an inheritance. He's sealed you and He's put a deposit in you, guaranteeing full possession. Isn't that phenomenal? And I think that what Paul does then is he wants you to sit back and think, wow, how do you respond? And I can imagine Paul writing in his prison and getting to the end of that and then finally putting a full stop in and sitting back and thinking, God, that's for me as well. 
Because then what, what does he say next in verse 15? For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering in your prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you would know him better. He says, listen, this is who you are. This is what you've got. Now I'm on my knees and I'm praying that you'll get it, that you'll know it. Not in here, but in here. And in verse 18, he, he says this, and we, we have a song about, well, it's quite an old song now, which we use from this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's a weird thing, that the eyes of your heart. But you see, in ancient days, in biblical days, the heart was not the seat of emotions like we call it now, Valentine's Day, okay, last week. The heart was the seat of emotions, mind and will. It was your inner man. It was your inner woman. It was who you really are. And the Bible attributes characteristics to that inner man. I haven't got the time to look in the Bible, but it says that inner man can see, that inner man can hear, that inner man can touch, that inner man can smell. That inner man is who you really are. Inner man, inner woman, you're with me, is who you really are. And Paul says, I pray not only in your rational mind, in your thinking mind, but I pray that in your inner core, you would know God. You would know God. Our churches in this country are full of believers who don't know God. They're full of believers who know about God, but who don't know God. They're full of people who did know God, and then that's all grown cold and hard and distant. And out there, our society is full of people who used to kind of know God, but then didn't know God because life was hard to them, or they got upset, or they got disappointed. I don't know if you read in the, the local house Zoe News this week a couple of letters about faith and Broke my heart just to read someone that says that she used to come to church and then someone took a seat and now she doesn't come again and religion's this and religion's that. I think, oh dear God, somebody upset you because they took your seat or you took their seat or whatever. And our culture is full of people who don't know God. And Paul says, I pray that you, and this is what he says, he prays four things. I pray that you'll know God. I pray you'll know God's calling. I pray you'll know God's riches. And I pray that you'll know God's power. Let me say a comment on each. I pray that you'll know God. Old story, I've told it lots of times. I will tell it to the day I die. Big gathering in a large auditorium. And an actor is asked to come and to recite Psalm 23. He's like a Morgan Freeman type of voice. Okay, He recites Psalm 23, rapturous applause. A little old guy says, could I have a go? Guy says, "Mm, all right then. Gets up to the pulpit, to the podium. Not a Morgan Freeman voice. Just a little old guy faltering Psalm 23. The end of it, no applause, but not a dry eye in the house. The Morgan Freeman type actor goes up to the little old guy after and says, Can I ask you a question? We both read the same psalm. When I read it, they clapped. When you read it, they wept. Why? Old man says, It's simple. You know the psalm. I know the shepherd. And there's something of truth in that simple story, isn't there? And I, I know loads of stuff about God, like many of you do, but do I know God? Do I really, in my inner being, know God? Going through some really challenging times in our own families, you know, we've shared that with you. And yesterday I, I had, was in a hospital somewhere and sat with someone from our church and thought, Dear God, why are we here in this situation? You know, I thought you'd done something here. Why, why not? What, what? And all of that stuff. And had a conversation with someone in the office about, doesn't God 
heal anymore? Doesn't God do miracles? And I believe He does, but sometimes He doesn't. And do I know God then? Or do I only know God when life works out like I want it to? And as I listen to Suzette talk about leg or no leg, wheelchair or no wheelchair, I'm going for God. I thought, and I'm the same. I want to be like that, don't you? I want to be like that. And Paul says that you would know God. That you know God's calling. And that's much more in the Bible than, Oi, Dan! Because when God calls you in the Bible in, in ancient times, the, the, the process of calling is more than calling out a name. So if, if imagine that Dan is Peter, Simon Peter. Jesus says, I call you Peter. That means rock. And when I call you Peter, I am calling you into that which I see you. You're going to become that. You're going to become a rock. See? To know God's calling on your life. To know God's riches. As I was, I was preparing this then in my office after Mary Hill and writing this. And as I, literally, and this is the truth, as I got to write this little bit about God, I had an email come through from someone in the church. And I, and I just kind of broke away and, and read it. And it was just phenomenal. Because the email, this is a story about an American uh, man and his wife. And they bought a barn in Portugal for $15,000. And the people that owned the barn had died 15 years before, leaving debts and no heirs. And so eventually, after 15 years, the, the, the executives of the will, etc., were selling off the barn to try and pay the debts. So this American couple, as part of their retirement investment, they bought this big old barn that had been sat there for 15 years. Nobody had been in it. They bought it. And then when they got the cutters and they opened the doors and they opened it, then on the email, I can show it to you, it shows you what was in the barn. It was full of hundreds of classic cars. It's unbelievable. It's full of classic cars to the value of $35 million. And that came through just when I was writing about that you would know God's riches. And I thought, come on. And I thought, actually, isn't that like a picture of how much we're like, you know, we've got this dusty old barn and we think it's not really worth a lot but inside it it's richer than you can imagine and, and Paul's prayer for you and my prayer for you as well is that you would know that you are rich if you're in Christ you may not have won the 56 million dollar rollover euro jackpot whatever those people run but that is nothing compared to what you've got in Christ isn't it we are rich in this little old dusty barn God has invested his riches in us and then finally, that you would know God's power. And Paul uses these unbelievable words. His incomparably great power. Paul says, listen, I want to pray that you would know his incomparably great power at work in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. And interesting enough, incomparably great power. Three Greek words. Hyperbalo, megathos and dunamis. We literally get hyper mega dynamite from that. He says, I pray that you would know his hyper-mega dynamite at work within you. The same hyper-mega dynamite that raised Christ from the dead. And wouldn't it be amazing if you and I knew that? Paul says, I'm on my knees and I'm praying that you would know his power at work within you. And that may mean for some of you that that power means that the mountain you're facing will be leveled. But it might mean the mountain you're facing will be climbed. Either way, you need God's power. Don't you? It might mean the sickness you're facing will be taken away. It might mean the sickness you're facing will be endured. Either way, you need God's power. It might be the circumstance you're facing will change. 
It might be that it won't, but you will. Either way, you need hyper, mega dynamite to change you.